Well, how did you do this week? Last week we um, we talked about the importance of being salt and light and uh, scatterers of seed. How'd you do? Did you throw some seed out this week? Did you um, did you shine some light this week? Did you did you flavor some lives with salt? It's this whole idea of adding value to people. Really, it's 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 the premise of Scripture. That it all comes down to this one thing, to love God and love people. And um, so how did you do? Pull out your journals. I, I want to give you uh, some time to interact. Uh, you know, they, they, they call this in some circles a sermon. Hopefully this is a little bit more of a message. And even beyond that, hopefully it's a little bit more of a dialogue. Even, even though I don't get to hear you audibly speak to me, I hope that you'll write or that you'll interact and in that process, there will be almost a conversation that take pay, takes place. Um, you know, my I feel like my responsibility is to kind of poke and prod and ask some questions and hopefully reveal truth wrapped up in Scripture, but it's the Holy Spirit, it's God's Spirit that actually speaks to your heart. Any conviction that happens doesn't come from the pastor or the speaker, the conviction actually would come from God. Or any encouragement ultimately that comes is something that comes from the heart of God. So, uh, that's the reason, by the way, we kind of do this journal thing. And we don't have a fill-in-the-blank form we hand you, because if you're like me, you'd just be ahead of the guy filling in the blanks, guessing what he's going to say. And uh, and then you miss whatever the heck it meant, because it's now like a crosswords thing. you know. Um, so it's a journal. So interact. We want to give you a chance to respond to that. I was on a flight to uh, Phoenix recently, and I was listening to a podcast. Our good friend Ken Coleman uh, started a podcast. Uh, it's called The Catalyst Podcast. Catalyst is an event that takes place in Atlanta every year. Been a, been a significant event for me in my life. And a few years back, I heard a guy named Tim Sanders. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> Bill Hampton was the guy who kind of set that up for the Catalyst event. Tim Sanders was the CSO for Yahoo, Chief Solutions Officer for Yahoo. And he's written a couple of books. Uh, one is called Love is the Killer App. And he's just written a second book called The Likeability Factor. And he was on this podcast discussing this second book. And I was really intrigued with what he said. He said they did all this research to try and determine what makes someone likable. And I thought, you know, after our discussion about being seed scatterers and being salt and light, isn't it important that as we interact with people that we come across as likable? I mean, the fact is, if we're truly representing God, then there should be something about us. You remember last week we talked about not just verbal words, but... 93% of communication is nonverbal. So there must there should be something in our posture and our facial expression in our nonverbals that communicates that we're open. Um uh somebody told me this recently. I can't remember who it was, but they said uh the way, I think it was in their church. Oh, 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 I think it was uh at fellowship. This is one they say open hands. What was the deal? What do they say on that? Open hands. Living with Open Hands. Yeah, Fellowship uh, Bible, which is a fantastic church up in Brentwood. That's one of their themes at their church is to live with open hands. I love that. It's a great picture um, to live with open hands. And, uh, and, and shouldn't we be that way as we interact with people? Well, he said after doing all the research, there were four things that they came up with re- regarding people who were likable. They said, number one, they were friendly. You know, it's, it's like the dog that wags his tail. You know, when you see the dog that comes up and he's wagging his tail and he's pant, you know, that's the dog you want to reach down and say, you know, oh, hi, doggy, and, you know, and give him a little pat on the head. The dog that comes up that, uh, that has his tail straight and his teeth, you know, set, it's not, that's not usually the first dog you're like, hey, let's play. Uh, maybe for some of you, you've tried that. Um, but, you know, you're friendly. And, and a lot of that simply starts with a smile. Simply starts with a And so, so, you know, here's one of the things to try this week. Uh, just... Catch yourself, are you smiling? Random times, just go, oh, am I smiling? And, and, and see how often you smile during the day. Some of you might be like, oh, whoa, got a little work to do on that. But I mean, just see how, how often do you smile or how often do you frown. It's probably a pretty good way to measure that. Uh, secondly, he says, um, a person's relevance so you might meet somebody and they're friendly, but there's no, there's no connection because there's, they have nothing relevant in their life to offer you or, or to connect with you. So when you meet somebody, one of the things, you, in order to try and establish a rapport 
or even a conversation is to, to identify what are so, what's something we have in common, which means that maybe there's something in this conversation that's, that's relevant to both of us. It, it's, I think it would also be commonality. Number three, he says that you have to have empathy. People who care. Uh, you know, one of the, you've heard me say this before. Wherever you are, be all there. You know, you guys have talked to the people when you're talking to them and they're, you know, looking past you for the next great conversation. And then they don't, you're like, hello, I'm here talking. And it just seems like they're in another world. And it, you don't, they don't, you don't feel real validated in that, do you? Um, and so, you know, do you listen? Do you, do you care? I mean, do you look at somebody and have a conversation and act like you actually care about what they're talking about? And so do you care? And lastly, and most importantly, which is pretty neat that he says this because this has really kind of the, really been one of the driving values here at the journey, is he says authenticity. And I love this because it's the thing we've been saying over and over and over again ever since we launched our church is life should be about being real and not fake. And he actually says, you know what, even if you screw up the other ones, you'll actually get somewhere if you're real. We've got a bunch of Western New Yorkers in here. One of the things, you know, I, I've, I've lived in a bunch of different places in the country. I'm going to give you my, there's my contrast, okay? I grew up in western New York, all right? Uh, if, if they didn't like your haircut, and I'd go over to my aunt's house, and I'd say, hey, I got my haircut. What do you think? Oh, it looks like crap. What did you do? Jeez. Okay, thanks. No problem. What do you want to eat? Um, you know, so, oh, thank you. Uh, I knew exactly where I stood with my aunt and my grandma. They didn't hold back. I'd come back from college. You put on a few pounds. Thanks, Graham. Yeah, just a couple. Uh, you know, uh, you know. So, so you know, they just yeah, that's what saying. So then I I moved. Uh, I I went to I moved I went to college in the South. And what I discovered in the South is I said, Hey, I got my hair cut. Oh, I love it. It looks so good. It's beautiful. I like. The, can I get the number? Because I like the. Oh, it's great. And then when you walked away, they went, Oh my goodness, what did he do to his hair? In the south, they tend to be a little bit more polite in the South, but if they didn't really like it, they let somebody know later on. <laughs> then I moved to the Midwest. I'd say, hey, I got my hair cut. What do you think? <laughs> I just didn't bother talking to you. That's well, not really worth my time to answer your question. Um, now, you know, that's a little harsh on culture. I understand. I'm giving you some extremes. But I'm telling you, so it's funny how you, we, we, in different cultures we kind of have this, you know, and out west, guys, yeah, cool, dude. It's great. How do you like mine? You're a freak. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's funny how different cultures we respond differently. But, the, but, but this idea of being authentic, and some of us have a harder time being real than others based on our upbringing. Some of us were taught, now you're supposed to act like this, and so part of us were just trying to do the appropriate thing. And by the way, some of that is good. I wish some Western New Yorkers would learn some tact from some of the people in the South. Um, you know, so some of that's good. But he said, look, the bottom line is, are you a real person? I mean, when, when, you, when you cut, do you bleed? I mean, are, are you real, or are you constantly trying to be something other than you are? And one of the things that people are valuing more than anything today is authenticity. I remember when I was a kid, um, my, my father's uncle owned a cabin, kind of way out. And uh, we didn't go often, but every now and then we went out to, see, to his cabin. We'd go fishing and some other things. Well, one time we went out to his cabin. I was really young, probably six or seven years old. We went out to the cabin, and I remember um, one of the like, distant cousins or somebody said, Hey, out up in the woods, there's this really cool spring. I'd heard, like, this thing about what a spring was, but I didn't really fully understand that. So he took me up in the woods, and there, out of, out of these rocks, somebody had shoved a pipe into these rocks, and out of the pipe just flowed water. I was like, well, how do you shut it off? Well, you don't. It's a spring. It just runs like that. I'm like, all the time? Well, when does it go empty? No, it just... So as a kid, I was like, well, that's cool. And, and they said, it's the best water you'll ever taste. I was like, well, water's water. It's seven. Now, of course, my kids now, would, you know, they've had like 15 different bottled waters, and you know, they all know the different tastes of water. Sure. Um, but, uh, but, you know, actually, I will admit, I, I leaned down and got me a taste from that cold spring. And it was good. It was really good. And what I discovered was uh, there was a purity to that water that made it taste different, that made it taste very good. 
See, there was a purity to it. One of the things about, about I think, if you wrap up what Tim Sanders was saying about likability, is wrapped up in this word. It's this word of someone who is pure. When you meet somebody and you go, man, that, that, and just a purity about that person. Have you ever heard that? Somebody described that way? You know, maybe not very often. But there's a purity about this, that person. Sometimes you hear this phrase, they're almost childlike. They're fun-loving. You hear some of those phrases sometimes. You're trying to get a description of who somebody is. Purity is something considered very valuable. And, of course, it's part of the reason it's valuable is because it's often very rare. Gold, silver, when it's pure, it has great value. In some cases, it makes things very special. And to some people, it makes things priceless. Something that's pure. I want you to hear about what the Bible has to say. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Listen to what the Bible has to say about this subject. 2 Timothy, did I say first? 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So our kids are talking a little bit about the heart this morning. And I want to reference this idea of the heart, especially the way the scripture talks about it. That these are the things we're supposed to to, to pursue along with identifying those who call on the Lord, who are obedient to God, who respond to him with a pure heart. Unfortunately, a pure heart is something that's also pretty rare. You might say, yes, in our society, it's difficult to find someone who's faithful and honest, truthful and sincere. And though I probably would not argue that point, that in our society, you go, man, it just, it's frustrating because it seems like it's so hard to find those people. I'm going to give you a reference to a generation that's older than ours. I was reading a work from the late 19th century, and I want to give you a quote that one man says regarding his culture. Late 19th century, he says this, Look close. Does thy neighbor or thy friend find thee faithful to him? Is it not the attempt to speak what is agreeable, oft made at the expense of truth? Are not professions of regard sometimes utterly inconsistent with our real feelings? In common life, where gross violations are restrained, a thousand petty offenses are allowed. In common language, what he's saying is that we walk around and we say things we don't mean. We are inauthentic. That we are are so cautious, among other things, not to offend anyone and to avoid confrontation that we, we actually rationalize our actions. And interestingly enough, as frustrated as we may be with our society today, this is not a new problem. This is something that's existed through the centuries, through the years. I heard a friend recently who was upset with someone else, and so they said they needed to share their concern with another friend. Have you been in the prayer groups? Oh, we need to pray for so-and-so. Let me tell you. Why? Oh, they need real deep prayer. Because she said... It's interesting, this whole thing about you know, sharing my concern with another friend. I want to get them involved in the concern. How about share the concern with the one you're concerned with? Well, there's a novel idea. But we have trouble with this sometimes. We, we have trouble because, you see, when, when it comes to, to dealing with conflict, a lot of us want to run and hide. And again, I'm going to go back to the way you were brought up and other things all shape the way you deal with conflict, what was modeled for you. But conflict is, it's hard. When you're, when you got, when you're dealing with conflict, how do you know what to do? I mean, how, and every circumstance is so different. I mean, how do you know how you're supposed to, to handle it? Well, the reality is conflict is not something we can ignore, though some of us try. I've got a friend of mine, he said, conflict I go buy a train ticket and go the opposite direction. I said, is that how you deal with it? Every time. I, I, he said, I, just, I hate conflict, can't handle it. So I, I sprint, I run, I take a plane, whatever I have to do. I, the opposite direction as fast as I can go. In the walk of life, 
Conflict is going to happen in trivial matters and on a grand scale. The question is not whether or not relational problems will arrive, but how we deal with them when they arrive. So there are three general responses to relational conflict. I'm going to give you three. Three general responses to relational conflict. Now, I don't do this often, but I'm, I, I'm going to have to apologize. I fell a little into the whole pastor thing, and I'm giving you three hours. Every now and then, you know, I slip. Three general responses to relational conflict. Number one, when we have relational conflict, we often react. You know, I was thinking about this reaction thing, and I probably don't have to give you a lot of illustrations because some of you can actually reference yesterday. But one of the movies that I absolutely love, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, is What About Bob? Have you seen this movie? What About Bob? Great movie. Classic Bill Murray movie. Uh, in the movie, he, he, he's, 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 he's a freak. He's, 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 you know, he's a mess. He's, he's totally got like all kinds of disorders and everything else, and he goes to see this therapist, um, Dr. Marvin. And, uh, and a bunch of problems ensue, but what happens is he winds up following Dr. Marvin to his, to his lake house, his vacation, and he starts to work his way into Dr. Marvin's family. In the beginning, Dr. Marvin is this very arrogant, you know, he feels very put together. Well, pretty soon, Dr. Marvin begins to lose his cool, and then he loses his temper, and eventually he actually loses his mind by the end of the story. But there's this one scene in particular that I always loved, I thought it was really funny. Uh, uh, Good Morning America comes to do this interview with him, because he's just written a new book, and by this time, Bob has worked his way into the family, everybody loves Bob. And Bob's got problems. And, and, but everybody loves him, and Dr. Marvin is doing everything he can to get Bob away. Well, the, 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 the morning interview happens, and Bob is there. Well, he winds up on TV with them, and it, it, it's an absolute disaster. And he's so frustrated, and so finally the family says, well, we don't know what to do. So they asked Bob if he would leave. So Bob walks out the door, and, 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 and Dr. Marvin is a wreck. And uh, he, he's standing there, and all of a sudden you, 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 um, you, the family says, uh, and the wife says, Leo... Leo, it was okay. It wasn't so bad. And he's like, no, it was a disaster, Faye. And he's all upset. And they're like, well, look, Bob is gone now. <laughs> and he says, gone? And he opens the door, and, and Bob hasn't left. He's standing in the doorway like this. And he said, gone? He hasn't gone. He's never gone. And all you hear is Bob say, is this some kind of radical new therapy? And, uh, and, 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 of course, Dr. Marvin explodes. It's such a great picture of reacting. My dad always told me this. He said, um, son, be careful with your anger. I, I said, why? Anger assassinates authority. When you're in a, in a position of authority and you lose control, you've just given up your authority. Your anger has assassinated your authority. You lose credibility. It's a great line, isn't it? When we rea- and by the way, most of us are in some kind of position of authority, and it often starts in our homes. An authority figure with our children. And it's hard, the people we're most comfortable with, that we live with, not to lose it, isn't it? And so sometimes we freak out in our homes and we explode, and our kids, you know, if you, you literally you see your kids like duck back like, whoa, mom's head's about to come off. It's just gone in circles, and uh, and you're just like, Whoa. and you, you know what? Here's the reality of it. People don't say this very often, but I'm going to call it like it is. You want to know why some of us react to conflict? Because there's a power in it. There's something powerful about intimidating people around you with your anger. Some people, people with psychosis, it becomes actually a drug for them. It kicks off the serotonin. It kicks off something in their mind, and it now becomes something they're addicted to. Your reaction to my intimidating anger is something that I get a kick out of. And you know what? Sometimes we as as parents, because we can't intimidate other people, but we can intimidate the little child some of us actually, though we don't admit it, and it's under the surface, and it's probably subconscious, actually like the feeling of power. 
You go, well, that sounds sick. It is sick, but I'm telling you, when you do it over and over and over and over and over again, you begin to create a habit. And there's something about, well, my child just cowered under me, and so I know I can control this. The problem is, as most of you know, because you've lived the years of adolescence, somewhere along the way, that will turn. And the day your child goes, I think I can take you, is the day the intimidation goes away and probably the day you lose your child. Maybe not physically, but emotionally. See, a lot of us don't handle conflict real well. We react, we explode, and we lose every time. And so do the people around us. So it's not the answer. You say, well, but I have this tendency to do this. Then curb the tendency. Change the the tendency. You know what? Halfway up the mountain is identification. And some of you need to move on from the message today and get some tools to deal with this. But halfway up is just being honest with enough with yourself to go, yeah, I got a reaction problem to conflict. Number two, before I give you number two, I want to give you a quote. I love this. It's been said that life is a great whispering gallery that sends back echoes of the words we send out. Isn't that good? That when we speak, sometimes, someplace, those things come back. And it's a great lead into number two. Number two, sometimes we don't react, but we relay. We pass along information. It's how we deal with conflict. And it's, by the way, probably the most often used response to confrontation. I'm really frustrated. I'm really angry. I'm dealing with conflict. But rather than deal with the person I'm in conflict with, I'm going to go sideways and bring someone else into the event. I'm going to bring someone else into the process. I'm going to relay What has happened? And the truly sad part of this response is that for many, this is not only a way of responding to conflict, but by the way, for some, it's a form of entertainment. It's an antidote to boredom and a way of life. I mean, you get that? For some, rather than being bored, they are on the phone talking about other people. And though performed by both sexes, it's the female gender that seems to struggle with this the most. The Bible calls this gossip. The relay of negative information. When you speak of someone in a way as to negatively influence the person that you are talking to. And by the way, that's important. How do we define gossip? I mean, what is gossip really? I mean, cause some, I mean does it mean I can never t- have a conversation about another human being? that might include something negative. I don't think that's what it means. But I think what it means is gossip is passing along information that in any way might damage this other person's perception of the person in question. Are you, in fact, uplifting this person in conversation, or might something you say negatively influence their attitude? Let me give you a couple of quotes. And the best quote is found in scripture and it says this I think it really summarizes he who keeps the tongue doth keep his soul MP Green said this the difference between news and gossip lies in whether you raise your voice or lower it the difference between news and gossip whether you raise your voice or lower it I love that See, the reality is gossip is the cowardly way out. And, as many of you know, it can be absolutely destructive to a family, to a church. Boy, how many churches could we put on the map for that one? Sadly, it seems like some churches are actually designed for gossip. That's what they're built around. It's a breeding ground. Because it can be. An unhealthy, dysfunctional church? Guess what? It's a breeding ground for that kind of thing. And if the leadership is afraid to deal with conflict, guess what continues on? More and more gossip. It's the cowardly way out. Family, church, your business, 
What if we spent the time we spent gossiping praying instead? Uh, just imagine, because we've all fallen into this trap. I mean, we've all done it. Let's be honest. And and and, and most and you know what the, you know why we do this by the way usually, you know why we typically pass on information about other people. Uh, let's just again let's just let's be honest here. We pass on information because we want to build our case. In some cases, we're not really sure we should be as hacked off as we are. I'm really frustrated, and I think I'm righteous in my indignation. But just to make sure. Let's validate it with some other people's opinions. And then it really stinks when you go, I'm telling you, he said this and she said that. And they go, well, I don't really think that's a big deal. Oh, shoot. Oh, that blew that out of the water. Or you try this one. You ever sat at a table? I had a friend who did this in high school. I'd sit at a table, and I remember we were at lunch, and somebody brought up something, and I mean, somebody's just getting ripped, right? We're sitting there at the table. And he's sitting next to me. And the whole conversation, he doesn't say a word. Doesn't say anything. Completely silent. I walked away from the conversation. I was totally convicted. I was convicted by his silence. He refused to engage. Matter of fact, at one point, he just walked away. Sometimes our silence... You know, there's one way to, to, to deal with gossip in any organization, family, church, whatever. One real quick way. If there's no one who receives it, then it never gets passed on. Isn't that interesting? Now, that person can lay in bed and gossip with all their different personalities. But it all stays right there. Abraham Lincoln had his enemies... Edwin M. Stanton despised Lincoln and often insulted him publicly. Once he called Lincoln a low, cunning clown. He said it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa and find a gorilla when they could easily find one in Springfield, Illinois. Apparently he was a big fan. Stanton described Lincoln, a man of humble means, as wearing a dirty linen duster for a coat with perspiration stains on it that resemble a dirty map of the continent. He's a nice guy. Yet Lincoln never retaliated. He just went about his duties. And when it came time to choose the country's war minister, he surprised everyone by appointing none other than Edwin Stanton. And when asked why he'd chosen his vicious opponent, he replied that Stanton's the best man for the job. Lincoln's gesture did not change Stanton's dislike for the president. The war minister once received an official order from the president and flatly refused to obey it. But but we have the president's order, the messenger said. Well, the president is a fool. When Lincoln heard what had happened, he asked the messenger who came back to him, did Stanton say that I was a fool? He used that very word, replied the indignant messenger. Well, Stanton is usually right, Lincoln said humbly. I'll slip over to see him. Lincoln went, and Stanton convinced him that the course he had intended to follow was indeed inadvisable. Over time, Stanton could not help but admire Lincoln. And The night Lincoln was shot and lay struggling for his life, Stanton stood over him, gazing silently into the man's rugged face, and through tears he said, There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Stanton never accepted Lincoln's politics, but he came to respect his humility and non-retaliating spirit. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.16, Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. The implication is that the heart becomes more and more dirty. The priceless purity has been traded for stained and muddied destruction. Verse 23, we are reading in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's continue on in verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Gentle instruction. Number three, we must learn to respond. 
We should not react, we should not relay, but we should respond. We're obligated to respond in two ways when hurt by someone else, according to verse 25, we're to gently instruct. It's important. I've got to tell you, by the way, as I was preparing this message, <laughs> I was uh, convicted. That happens. As a pastor, you prepare a message and you're usually, you get jacked up by God while you're preparing. So I'm usually the first one repenting. So I found that was happening while I was preparing and going, you know what, God, there are times I raise my voice with my children and the gentle instruction that you've described here doesn't fit my tone. I was convicted. And so you know what? I determined right then and there and prayed, God, I want you to help me when I walk into the room and I see one of my boys flying through the air into the drywall before I pull his head out of the wall Cause me to take a deep breath, to pause, to count if need be, but to speak with authority under control. According to verse 24, we're not to be resentful, which in fact means that we need to forgive. Now, that's a whole other conversation. It's another message. Because forgiveness is a very broad topic. But there's one very important thing I want you to get about forgiveness. Because most of us think, think, and we maybe we've even said, I can't forgive that person. I can't forgive him. I can't forgive her. You don't know what they've done to me. You don't know what they've done to my wife, my children, my family, my friends. I cannot forgive. And this is what we miss about forgiveness. Forgiveness has nothing to do with the other person. Nothing. If you want to come up with another word or phrase for that emotion, fine. But don't use the word forgive. Because forgiveness is not about them. Forgiveness is about you. Forgiveness frees you. If you choose not to forgive, you're placing yourself in a cell and you're locking the door. And the crazy part about it is that the key is in the door and you remain in the cell. Forgiveness is all about you. You want to know who loses when you don't forgive? You. You become bitter and angry. And you have trouble functioning because you become resentful. We're to gently instruct, and by that I, I believe it means two things. Number one, I think it means silence. Sometimes instruction comes through silence. Number two, I think it comes through rebuke. Now, re- rebuke is not a pleasant word, I've got to tell you. How many people love to use the word rebuke? It sounds like puke. Rebuke, puke. I, I think they, you know, they both have the same sound. In English language, nobody goes, that's just such a beautiful word. I love that word. Rebuke. It's not. It's gross. And so most of us want to avoid it. We don't like to rebuke. It's just, rebuke, I rebuke you. It's just, it sounds a little over the top, doesn't it? And yeah, that's what the Bible calls it. The better word, I think, for us to understand is that we're to confront we, we actually have to confront. We a, that means we actually have to stand toe-to-toe, face-to-face with our conflict. And it's one of the hardest things in the world we can do. As a matter of fact, the reason it's so hard is because when we confront, there's great risk in confronting. There's great risk. Because if I confront somebody, I could lose them. As a friend, I, I, like something could happened to our relationship. A few years ago, I uh, had this come up. I had, to, I had to confront somebody. This guy worked for me. I was a pastor. This guy came on as our middle school youth pastor, and the dude was a stud. He was stellar. He was unbelievable. He came in part-time. He was going to school. He had to carry a lot of things, juggle a lot of things, but he came into our middle school ministry, and he really built it from nothing. And our ministry began to grow like crazy, and he's just, he was an all-star. My adults responded to him. It was amazing. But something happened along the way, and he began to lose focus. Some things creeped up in his life, distractions and other things. And after a series of events, I had to come to the place where I had to confront him and go, you know what, this, 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 this has happened. We haven't been able to turn this around, and now a couple of these things have happened specifically. I have no alternative. But I... I you're going to have to step down. I'm going to have to let you go. Now you're my friend. I mean, we, we, you're my minister, fellow minister. But um, this is the right call. And um, 
I was really concerned how he would handle it. An interesting drama ensued over the next five years. But rather than me tell you, I thought I'd ask him to help. Visiting with us this weekend is Ben and Kat Hurst. And Ben, if you would come up here. I asked Ben, it just ha- so happened that Ben was with us this weekend. And uh, maybe if you use that mic, Brian, if we can use that. Uh, I said, Ben, I'm talking a little bit about forgiveness and conflict. Maybe it would be good for us to tell our story. And uh, so Ben was kind enough to, um, d- 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 is it coming out of that? <laughs> is it coming out of that? Can you yank it out of that thing? Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Brian, what should we do there? Oh, beautiful. So Ben, take us from, um, here we are in my office, and I'm saying, you know, you're going to have to step out. Tell, tell, tell us, I, I, how are you feeling? And, and kind of lead us into the story. What happened from there? Are you making faces over here? I'm having fun with your chair. Oh, thanks. I, I looked up here and I thought I got to try From the conversation in the office. Yeah. Uh, well, that day, I, I went home. I was thoroughly bummed out, uh, somewhat shocked, though I probably sensed it was coming. Um, a, a lot of the things that led up to that day uh, were, were attitude. You know, a, a lot of it was directly... Uh, related from from my attitude, uh, poor attitude. I was just I was withdrawing. A lot of it was was based on you know my perception of of Jamie's perception of me, and it was all up in here. I was having the head talk. I don't know if you guys have had that, but you know you have an argument with somebody in your head. They're really not there, but you've imagined this way, and they're saying these things, and you're getting upset with them, and uh, and so I was struggling a lot with with the approval of man, especially of Jamie, because. You know, he was my mentor, my friend. He was somebody I looked up to, wanted to be like in many ways. And, uh, and I felt like I didn't have that approval. And, again, it was all up in my head. Um, and so I, I started to withdraw. I started to, to, to fail in my duties. I started to struggle in school. I was, I was just really – I was in a world of hurt. And so uh, after that conversation in the office, um, I went home and laid down and slept all day. I don't think I got up and did anything the next day. I was de- I was depressed. I was really just down in the dumps about it. Um, and by the way, that you, you, sometimes when you confront somebody, you do think through. Well, gosh, what if I like push them to depression or something? I mean, you're, you're sometimes you go, I can't confront that. I mean, do you know they might be unstable, or they might do this, or they might do that. And 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 when you're confronted with something, there again, this is the we all go through. I think we do the head talk on this side too. The the amount of risk. And someone's going, well, this isn't worth dying for. I don't know if I want to go there. So summarize, a quick stint. You wound up staying with us for a short time, but pretty soon walked away, and really in your whole life kind of walked away from a lot of almost everything. It yeah, I, uh, I stayed around, and, and part of it was I felt like I still needed to prove something that, you know, I, I, I was trying to prove even to myself that I wasn't begrudging this, even though I was. Suppressed it, just held it down. Just kind of held it at a certain level and just kept it there. Stayed around. I served voluntarily in the youth ministry. Uh, Jamie even married married my wife and I during this whole time period. And so, you know, we we did I we were doing everything that we could. We had a great relationship. Uh, and so, and we, you know, I I had thought to myself always, well, this is the guy I want us to marry us. And so, all these things we were doing and and just kind of holding these things down and and just. It ate me up inside. It just just churned and churned and churned, and eventually I just couldn't keep the lid on it anymore. And so, I, as that as that developed, as it as it took hold of me, took root even deeper and deeper, I just started to drift away, uh, not just away from from proximity to Jamie George, but from the church we were going to, the church he was he was pastoring in. Um, I drifted away from all my relationships. I just withdrew. I just kind of went to a cave and hid there. Uh, I was in the cell, and the key was on the door, and I just, I preferred to be in the dark. I just preferred to be there at that time, because I didn't want to, didn't want to face it, didn't want to admit where maybe I had gone wrong, and, and I was just begrudging things. I wasn't forgiving uh, what I perceived to be wrong about the situation. And that lasted, really, we didn't, we, we didn't even see each other for like two and a half, three years. Now take us from, uh, so two, three years go by. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a retail job, working at Journeys in the mall. 
Uh, in the meantime, even your relationship with your wife, everything, every, er, everywhere, like you said, struggling across the board. God brings this guy into your life named Jerry. Yeah, this was uh, this was kind of an interesting wake up call uh, to me that you know, a it, it showed me just how much God loves me. Uh, to, to even in my stubbornness and in my bitterness, that he would still place an opportunity to be used right in front of me. And, uh, and so this guy, his name is Jerry, uh, struggled. He had a really hard background, and he worked in the same place as I did, so I get to see him every day. Uh, we worked 10-hour days at least, and so I, you know, when we weren't selling, we were on the floor talking. And, uh, and he knew a little bit about my background, you know, that I used to be a youth, pa- youth pastor and, uh, you know, believed in Christ. And, and he had had really bad experience with church. He'd been abused as a child. His parents would, would let their friends abuse him physically for drugs. Um, and so he couldn't fathom that there could be a God that w- would allow that to happen. And so, you know, I just became a listening ear for him for a long time. Um, eventually, this guy made a turn just from a little bit of conversation with my wife and myself, you know, to, to Christ. We led him to Christ, and, and it was a beautiful thing. This guy's on fire. He's gung-ho, literally. He's in the Army. He's training to be a Green Beret. Um, he's a spectacular guy. And, but what that did to me was uh, it, it brought something back into focus that I'd lost, that, uh, that relationships are, are the key thing. They're important. Um, they're, they're the importance. Um, and I... <laughs> I sat down and just kind of reflecting back on that time with him, I was at home, I was sitting on my swing, and, uh, you know, I, I read, I was reading the Bible, and, and I came across, you know, the verse that says, you know, if you're at the altar, you're making an offering, and you have, there's something between you and your brother, leave that offering there, because I was praying for Jerry at the time, he had just made the turn, I said, leave that offering there, go make things right with your brother, and then come back. So I went and did that. I, I went to Jamie and I said, here's, here's where I've been. And it was just kind of a sudden thing. I just popped in on you one day and you just happened to be there, which was amazing in and of itself. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, do, we just talked it out. And, uh, and I said, you know, right or wrong, the way I felt, you know, or what I perceived, whether it was accurate or inaccurate, I, I'm over this. Um, I forgive you for, for what I felt like was wrong, and, and I'm sorry for what I did wrong. And so it was a long, long journey, and uh, I don't intend to ever do anything like that again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Ben walked in that day, uh, and I told him, there were so many times that I would reach for the phone and want to re-engage in the relationship. And every time I did, I, I just felt a check. I just felt like God was saying, no, there's a journey Ben's on, and don't try and divert what's happening. But I got to tell you, and some of you guys have been through this, you lose, I mean, really, one of my best friends who, was, who, who I served with daily, you lose that relationship for three years, and you're not sure you'll ever have it again? To confront carries great risk. But interestingly enough, in Ben's sensitivity to God, he comes back to see me and, in fact, confronts me these were my feelings, and this was my perception. I, ha- I was able to say, I didn't, I didn't understand that. I didn't realize. I didn't know any of that, and I'm sorry. And in that moment, we had reconciliation, and here we are two years later, and we had a, uh, about a year and a half together in St. Louis to, to kind of re-engage and have a rebirth to our friendship. But here we are again, enjoying God, enjoying each other, on the journey side by side, and and I don't want you to catch this. This is the most, this is the amazing part of this story, because especially those of us who have trouble with control, if I confront, if I confront, well, no, what, what could happen? And some of you, the thought of a breaking a relationship for three years, oh, you'd be a mess. And it was hard. It was hard on both of us. But in the middle of our mess. In the middle of what we each did wrong in the relationship, God, who works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, I believe sent Ben on this journey to interact with this young man who, as he said now, is finishing up his training as a Green Beret, will go on a mission shortly to Iraq and maybe one of the most significant players in protecting our nation.
And as a believer in Christ, when he lays his life on the line, there is a confidence regarding his eternal destiny. We don't know what God is up to and what he will do when we trust and simply obey scripture. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. We have to learn to forgive. We have to learn to confront. The goal of confrontation is not just to get things off our chest, and the goal of confrontation is not to prove that we are right. Get this. The goal of confrontation is forgiveness for us and reconciliation for the other. This is the goal of confrontation. This is important because some of you guys are going to go, oh, hey, I got that confronting thing down. (laughs) Not a problem. That's not my problem. Come on. You guys need some confrontation? Schedule it in my calendar. Bring it over. Some of you, yeah, you like it. But the goal of confrontation is not, well, see, I'm right, and I can, I can out-debate you. The goal is forgiveness for you and reconciliation, really, for you both. Sin isn't just bad things people do, but sin is something that breaks our relationship with God and with other people. Forgiveness isn't just forgiving the wrong. It's reestablishing a broken relationship if it's available. It doesn't... Look, and some of you have been burned deeply. And I've talked with people who have been through divorce situation and other, th- other things, and they say, well, what do you mean reestablishing a relationship? I'm not talking about necessarily re- reestablishing at that level, but it means that you do reestablish at a point where the conflict between you has been resolved. And it may end there. And that may be it. Maybe the herd is strong and the relationship is severed, but at least the conflict is gone and you can be amiable. In some cases, there actually may be a restoration and over time, maybe there's a rebirth for a relationship. True believers in Christ are known by their forgiving spirit. Why? Because we've experienced the most ultimate forgiveness ever given to humanity by the person of Jesus Christ been modeled for us. It's been given to us. Ephesians chapter 431. If you'd turn there. Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice, but be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. There are going to be times that it doesn't seem like people deserve to be forgiven. Again, as soon as that thought comes to your mind, you have to take the forgiveness off them. And realize it's about you. Matthew eighteen twenty two says that we must forgive and continue to forgive. 70 times 7. It doesn't stop. Why? Because forgiveness is not about them. It's about you. And the truth is, it's how God shapes us and builds character in our lives. If you want to be able to get along with others and scatter seed in flavor with salt and be light, then you have to learn to forgive. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? For some of you, as the message has continued this morning, there has been conviction, reminder, unfinished business. Our hope and our purpose in this place is for us to be drawn into an intimate relationship with God and into an open relationship with people. And if you are distracted and if you are disrupted and if you are confused and if you are in pain and you are carrying anger, can I just... Ben has just given you a picture 
of how destructive it can be when it runs. Unhindered. I remember Ben and I talked at one point in one of the conversations was the regret is that you can't go get that time back. And again, we're talking about that great paradox how God, even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our rejection, still uses us because he loves us. And there are going to be times, I promise you, that you don't understand the Bible and go, I don't think this is right, and I certainly don't think this is going to work. Your responsibility is not to outthink God, but to be obedient and to trust him. It takes risk. But you know what? If God is truly God, and I really believe, he'll offer, he'll offer you a gift. He gave Ben the gift of a new friend and Jerry, and he gave Ben and I both a stronger relationship as a result of it. I suspect that there are some names floating through your mind. Don't put it off. God's desire for you is that you don't stand up from your chair with excuses but that you stand up from your chair with resolve. So would you talk to God for a minute? Just pray to Him. Maybe some of your anger and bitterness has been toward Him. Tell Him how you're feeling. By the way, that doesn't mean you can't be honest with God. Don't filter it. Speak plainly. And the God of comfort and love, I believe, will bring you restoration. It may happen in a single moment, and it may happen in time. Even that is up to God and His wisdom. But He loves you. And if you need to have a conversation with somebody, I encourage you to do it quickly. Don't put it off. An email, a phone call, a letter, a knock on a door, a visit this afternoon. Don't put it off. Make it right. And you'll be amazed. Even if the person doesn't accept it, rejects you, the peace that you'll experience in being obedient to God. Continue to pray or join us in worship. We're going to continue to offer up our praises to God.